Father, thank you for loving us the way you do. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be here this morning as we celebrate together uh, Palm Sunday, our Lord's entrance into the city of Jerusalem. So we pray for your blessing on this and pray that you would help us to give all of our hearts to our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about peace and how Jesus made an offer of peace as he came to Jerusalem. Um, I cannot think of anything that was less peaceful for me growing up than um, going to math class. It didn't matter what grade I was in. I, I think there was a place in high school where you never had to go to math class anymore, and that was sort of a good day when that happened. There's a story of a teacher who was giving her kids an exam, and it was kind of a word problem, and I hated word problems. You know, uh, uh, and so she gives him this word problem that a man has died, and he's leaving $500,000 to be split among various people in his family, and he says uh, um, the wife would get a quarter of that, one of the sons would get 10% of that. One of the daughters would get 15% of that. The butler would get 5% of that, and the rest would go to charity. And then she looks at the classes. They're trying to write all that down, and she says, what will each of them get? And little Joey puts his hand up right away. She said, Joey, what? A lawyer. Because it doesn't matter where you have people dividing a will, there is no peace. Everybody wants to know what peace they get of it. So we're going to be talking this morning about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And he was offering peace as he went there. Now we're going to do something a little bit different. The next slide, please. We're going to be talking about, I'm actually putting this together as a composite gospel there are certain places in the gospel where if you just if you read one one gospel like Matthew, you get part of the story. You read Luke, you get part of the story. You read Mark, you get another part. Well, there are certain events in Jesus' life where it's really neat to squish them all together and see what the order was, how this one event actually played out. And that's kind of what we're going to be doing. So He's making the offer of peace as he comes into Jerusalem. We know that. Now, the context for this is this day in which Jesus is coming into Jerusalem is an enormous day in the plan of redemption. It is the end of Daniel's 69th week. Now, we won't go back and look at that passage, but he, Daniel says, or Gabriel says, there are going to be seven weeks, and then there are going to be 62 weeks. I could even manage that one, 69 weeks. After which, an anointed one, a Messiah, would be cut off and have nothing. That is this day. Jesus is entering, and you know, there are, there are guys like at Dallas Seminary, I mean, massively brilliant men who have worked on all of the numbers of the, I mean, they, they have like huge head, like cranium. We could drive a truck right through those things. And they have figured this out almost, I think, to the day, give or take a couple hours. But anyway, this is a major landmark in redemptive history in 
prophetic history. Now, can you imagine preaching this at some point in, in history and not really being aware of that, not bringing this out? This is a golden moment. So, that is that. Now, these men have also figured out that somebody did, that this was also the day, ironically, that they presented the Passover lamb. Not killed the Passover lamb, but which lamb are we going to designate for the nation? And they chose that lamb that day. Now, the, I'll just throw this in. I, I put a little notation under there, two days. You realize this year when Jesus did this, there were two days for the Passover. Right? There was Thursday when Jesus ate it, and there was Friday, what we call Good Friday, but that's the reason why the Jews would not go into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, so that they could celebrate the Passover that day. That's why they asked Pilate to break the legs of the guys who were on the cross, so that they would be taken down before the Sabbath, because that Sabbath was a holy day, because it was not only the Sabbath, it was the Passover. Wow. I mean, all these things coordinating. And um, these guys with the big heads also say that there's a little bit of a problem here. We don't have to go into it. They think it could have been Palm Monday, but I think that just proves that a truck did go through their heads. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's a problem with being too smart. Now, the anointed one was coming in peace. The disciples are terrified. Now, if you read the Gospels, you realize that on their way to, Jer to Jericho, they're shaking in their boots. Jesus had to call them aside, and he had to say, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go into Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death, and he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles, and they're going to spit in his face and mock him and, kill and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. It says they had no understanding what he was talking about. They couldn't grasp it. So after Zacchaeus, Jesus takes off again. Now he's heading up to Jerusalem. They're terrified. They know something is going to happen. And then the one last thing I want to say here is, if I'm saying, supposing that Jesus is coming in peace, then this has to be a peaceful day. Now, if you read the end of Matthew, you, uh, this account says that, Right after he enters Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. That's pretty not peaceful. Luke says the same thing, and then we go to Mark, and Mark says it was the next day. John doesn't even mention it. John has the first cleansing of the temple. Right at the beginning, Jesus ministering. Everybody leaves that one out, except John. But... John doesn't include it here because, of course, he's writing as an older guy. He's trying to fill in blanks for people. The point being is you have three of the synoptic Gospels. Two of them say it happened one way. You have Mark saying another. If you put them all together, the best way to understand that is that Jesus left that evening. He came back the next morning, and he cleansed the temple. And, you know, Alfred Edersheim and all these other guys with the huge heads um, agree with some of that. So he's coming this day. In peace. So, when you look at that story, there are like different sections of it, and I think those are intentional, and that's what we're going to be going through. We're going to try to get Jesus into Jerusalem before I run out of time. Next slide, please. So, one of the things that we have to look at here, Jesus is coming in. Now, we know this scripture, right? Um, re 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, this passage is also in uh, Matthew. The reason I'm bringing that up now is what I want to emphasize is the fact that Jesus came in riding a donkey. He didn't come in as a victor declaring um, some kind of military victory or siege. Jesus comes into Jerusalem fully knowing that he has won. There's no need to be big and bad and bold and all these other things because he has already won. He knows that. So he is coming in with an offer of peace. He is not showing any aggression. Now, that's going to come Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But on this day, he is just coming in peace. And the reason I put the Zechariah verse up there is because of the contrast with the next verse, which is... I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, which means to the ends of the earth. You know, so what's so interesting is that in this next verse, it talks about war horses. It talks about weapons, but that's not how Jesus is coming in. The offer he is making to Jerusalem, and I would just say right now in this time, the offer that he is making to the entire world, the offer he's making to you and me, is an offer of peace. He's not coming in big and bad. He could have ridden a war horse. Now, you know what's so interesting here? It says he comes into Jerusalem. He comes in very humbly. When he comes again... He comes in quite differently. The revealing or the apocalypse of Jesus, we've already talked about that last year. It is a pretty stark event. There it mentions horses. And I I put two little scripture at the bottom there. 1911 is Jesus coming on a horse. He is not coming on a donkey. He is coming to do war. To set peace in a chaotic world. That's what Jesus does. And he will. Now, 6-2, that's kind of me and a couple other commentators, because there is another white horse and somebody who sits on it. I think that's Jesus, too. I think that's Jesus coming in victory and taking the saints at the beginning of the tribulation and showing that he has won that right to do that. So I think that's the beginning of the tribulation. That's Jesus coming for his own. That's the white horse, that first seal. Well, anyway... The point I want to make here is that Jesus is coming in peace. He's not coming to ruffle feathers. He is not coming to yell at people. He is not coming to pronounce woes. He's not coming to do anything but walk into Jerusalem and let the people accept him and to bring with him peace. Now, what I want to say here is just simply this. That's what he's doing today. That's why it behooves us whatever behooves me. Why do we even use words like that? I don't even know what a behooved is. But the point being is that's why we should imitate Jesus in this. You know, where it says um, in the Gospels that he would not wrangle or cry aloud. No one would hear his voice in the streets. He wouldn't break a bruised reed and he wouldn't quench a smoldering wick. 
that time will come. But for right now, it's a message of peace. We don't need to judge people. We just need to say what our boss, our king, says about life. He'll do that. But right now, we bring an offer of peace. And I think that's what people need nowadays, is they need an offer of peace. Especially, you know, you think about the year we've had, and if that wasn't bad enough, we had four years before that that were pretty whatever, and then not only that, it looks like the the way ahead of us is going to be kind of a rough way. People are looking for answers. People need peace in their life. So what exactly does Jesus have to do with peace? And I know the standard answer is come to him or go to hell, but sometimes that doesn't sound like a good answer or the message of peace. The message of peace right now is to be able to come to him and find out who he is. And some people have already talked about that in the early service. So we're going to walk down the road with Jesus here and uh, see what happens. Scott? Okay. Jesus brings peace in unexpected demands and challenges. We all have them, and the disciples have them too. Now, imagine that these guys are terrified. And they have come. It says, they drew near to Jerusalem. So this is the morning. And they, they get to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus says to two of them, Go in the village opposite us, and when you walk in the village, you're going to find an ass tied, and next to it, a colt, a foal, in which no one has ever ridden before. Untie them and bring them to me. Hmm. So Jesus is asking two of his disciples to go and commit grand theft donkey. (laughs) And what's so interesting about this is that... um, they just have to take his word for it that this is going to be okay. Because if you or I were doing it, I would think, nah, this isn't going to go over so good. Now, they didn't quite understand what was happening. But the interesting thing to me is Jesus is putting a demand on them. Now, you could ask the question, which two disciples is Jesus going after? Now, the only two disciples we know of that Jesus ever used as a group uh, or for assignments are Peter and John. So the next two that Jesus uses for the Passover will be Peter and John. And then once we get to the book of Acts, who do we see there? Peter and John. And who were the two disciples that ran to the tomb when Mary Magdalene said they've taken Jesus' body out? Peter and John. So it's a good guess that this is Peter and John. So we know the story, and I don't have to go into that very far. But the thing that's so interesting here is that they went and that they obeyed. And it made probably no sense, except for the fact that it was Jesus telling them to do that. Now, so my question with us is that when God asks us to do things, when the unexpected comes into our lives, when we have to face challenges, first of all, who's that from? You know? Because we have to do some things that we don't want to do. Some of us are having to rearrange our lives because of these things that have happened in this last year because of COVID, right? People have lost their jobs. And it's like, so who put that demand on us? A crummy government or some uh, virus that was somewhere else? Or can we take that all the way back to God and say, hey, God is doing that 
for a purpose, and ultimately, if I'm going to complain, I'm complaining to God, or if I'm going to obey, I'm going to obey God, and I'll just see what falls out about it. The neat thing about John and Peter was this. Peter was that guy, when they had labored all night and they couldn't catch a fish to save their life, and these are professional fishermen, Jesus gets done talking, he looks over to Peter, who had just finished folding up the nets again, he says, hey, put out into the deep for a catch. And Peter goes, Lord, we toiled all night and we got nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Five minutes later, Peter is on his face before Jesus, worshiping Jesus, realizing because he obeyed and what God did, I should trust this guy. If these guys had not gone, and see, this is what I see in this is Jesus is training his guys still for when he's leaving. If they hadn't gone, would they have seen this glory? They walk into that village. Lo and behold, there's a donkey there. I mean, Jesus' eyes, they may have been that good, but I'm guessing he couldn't see that. They walk in there, they they see that, they see the colt, they untie it, and there's a couple guys there that go, hey, what are you doing untying the colt? He says, the master needs it, and he's going to send it immediately. They go, okay. And they, they let him take off. Folks, when God asks us to do stuff that seems unusual, when things bump our lives that we don't like, we need to step back a little bit and say, where is this demand really coming from? Ultimately, it is coming from a God who loves us. And how are we going to see God's glory? How is he going to strengthen our faith? I was at a seminar a couple weeks ago, and what I was telling the guys was this. In the harvest, the way God builds our faith is because we ask, we seek, we knock, we cry out. And in doing that, he answers some of our weirdest prayers, the things that he puts on our hearts, the things that we think are impossible. And boom, they happen. And it gives us peace. It gives us peace because he's going to keep, especially if we're, Bearing fruit for him, he's going to keep on making strange and unusual requests in our lives. And he's going to give us, instead of that straight, comfortable path we like, he's going to give us a different kind of path. But one in which there'll be a lot of blessing because we know we can trust him. And I don't know if these guys had peace in their heart before or after this event, or before this event, but they probably did afterward. Because as they walked in, they saw it was just as Jesus has said. Okay, so there's our verse, and the next verse, the disciples didn't understand this, but they understood later. So, they didn't even understand it. If they could have said it was fulfilling scripture, maybe that would have given them some kind of assurance. But what I want to show by this is that the beginning of the triumphal entry began with the fulfilling of scripture, and that's exactly how it'll end. Okay, peace and confusion. I like this one because this is generally where I live in my life. The, uh, the crowd that had been with, G- with him, Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. The next day, the, a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. 
The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done the sign. The Pharisees then became unglued. It says that in the Hebrew or Greek or whatever. Then said to one another, see that you can do nothing. You see that you can do nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Now, this is an interesting vignette here because these people are coming from Jerusalem. They hear Jesus is coming. They go out to meet him. John is the only one who tells us they had palm branches. Thank God for the Apostle John. If he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have Palm Sunday. Thank you, John. Anyway, John is the only New Testament writer who mentions palm leaves. Mentions it twice. Here's one of them. So anyway, but here's the deal. Jesus hasn't gotten into the city yet. He's still out on the Mount of Olives. They have heard that he's coming. So you have a procession of people leaving Jerusalem, going out there. But there are still people out there. Well, what I wanted to say was just simply this. The people that are going out there aren't going out because they think Jesus is the Messiah, necessarily. They heard that he did, that he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? So what exactly is happening there? Are these true believers? Do they really have their heart in this? Or are they going to see this miracle wonder man? And it's been alluded to by a couple people during the breaking of the bread that in a couple weeks, or in in a week, in a couple days, um, they're going to start changing their hearts about Jesus. They didn't go out there necessarily because of that, because they really believed in him. My thought here is that if Jesus was a purist, or if we're purists in this, we look at this and we say it's a messy event. It's really not them going out to accept their Messiah. It's really not to welcome the king. Who knows what they thought as far as Jesus coming? Um, Maybe they they were thinking, and I'm sure there were people who thought that he's going to get rid of the Roman government. He didn't get rid of the Roman government. Uh, Maybe he's going to do something fantastic with his power that will just level the playing field. He did not do that. So what exactly is going on? Why could anybody rejoice at this event? Well, you know, the thing is, that's so interesting, is that the Father was putting the event together. Because that's just how the world is. It's just simply a messy place. Things happen outside of our control. We meet people who we think maybe are solid people. They're not solid people. We meet confused people. And we have to deal with a world that just is not together. And realize that God is still working in that world. I managed to get um, Laura signed up for a uh, vaccine, and that's why she's not here this morning. She's kind of... uh, fighting with that thing a little bit, but um, so I'm filling out, I'm helping her fill out the paperwork for the vaccine at the VA, and this is one of the questions. Uh, What was your gender at birth? So I filled that one out for her. What what gender do you identify with? I didn't want to ask her. No, I know, you know. Confused? Different? Something that I don't really want to have to deal with, but you know what? I, I understand that's the world we live in. You just check the boxes and go on. She got her shot. There's a lot of that kind of uh, messiness in life. And that's what is happening there. I, you know what? I left out a whole section of verses there. 
So what basically happens is this. Uh, I'll go on from there. Now I know it's missing. They bring the, they bring the, do- the donkey and the colt to Jesus. They set their garments on the donkey and they set him up on the colt. And there's a crowd there. The cra- it says, most of the crowd put their garments on the ground, but others of the crowd went into the fields, cut off leafy branches from the fields and laid them on the road. Now, leafy branches are not the same as palm leaves. So this procession is coming. They're going to meet the other procession, procession and what they're saying is, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Something like that. It's probably on one of these slides. It's a great event. It's exactly what the Father has designed, but it's not, if you're going to be a purist, you have to look at it and say, ah. But the thing is, Jesus is the one who brought peace into it. Because Jesus accepted it. He understood what was happening. Maybe it was just a shadow of what will be. But people were at least saying the right thing. Hosanna To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They didn't have everything, but they had enough. And it was enough. And so even in that messy situation, um, Jesus was able to see what was in it. And I would say he brought peace to that situation. Now, peace and opposition. The thing that's interesting here, looking at the story now, is it says that as they were drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples. Now you realize the disciples are different than the people. Right? They weren't all disciples. Jesus had the twelve, but he also had the seventy, and he had a, a larger group with that. And it says... They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They had been with him. They had seen him raise people from the dead. They had seen him cleanse lepers. They understood something more about Jesus because of what they were able to see him do. Peter, um, in one of, uh, one of his confessions, and, and he says uh, to the twelve, do you also wish to go? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Son of God. There was something deeper that they understood about Jesus, but what I want you to see here is look at what they say. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Now that seems pretty mundane, except for the line, peace in heaven. Isn't that different than what the angel said? See, when the Son came to earth, the angels say, peace on earth. The disciples are saying, peace in heaven. What? How can we, or how can he, bring peace in heaven? Well, notice, this is where the Pharisees come unglued. It isn't because of the hosannas of the people. They may have even understood these people don't quite know what's going on and everything, and eh. But the disciples saying this is what really hit the Pharisees. And they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that we on earth can have an effect in bringing peace in heaven? 
Is it possible that this one man, yeah, I mean, because the Jewish leaders would not have thought this. How is it that this man is going to bring peace to heaven? I mean, we all understand peace on earth, right? Jesus coming, but what does this have to do with peace in heaven? And how would any of us think that what we do here on earth would somehow accumulate also to that end, that there would be peace in heaven? And I think this bent the Pharisees out of shape. And they said, rebuke them. But I think even in what Jesus says, the very stones would cry out. Uh, there are some clues in there. So, what about peace in heaven? Is heaven a peaceful place right now, kind of? The other guy is up in heaven right now. We all know that, right? So look in Revelation here. It says, after this... I looked and behold a great multitude which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The second reference from the Apostle John to palm branches. These people have achieved victory. They're also bringing peace. Now you say, now what, what, what does this have to do with anything? What's the context? Well, the 144,000 have just been identified. These are the people, this multitude without number. See, because we could number the 144,000, right? But these guys you can't number. These come out of the Great Tribulation. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. They're martyrs who come out, who are saved and come out of the Great Tribulation. And there is something about these people, because when we get to chapter 12 in Revelation, that's when Satan gets kicked out of heaven. Finally, the neighborhood cleaned up, right? Trash is thrown out. But what it says is that they defeated Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and because they counted not their lives as precious. And it blew Satan basically out of heaven. What Jesus did, be, being the Son of Man, giving his life on the cross, being raised from the dead, being the conquering king, brought peace to heaven, and we work with him because as he saves us, as his spirit is alive in us, as we are willing to bear testimony for Jesus Christ, as we are willing to allow our lives to be taken from us, as he allowed his life to be taken from him, it defeats the enemy and it brings peace to heaven. Peace and opposition. Do you like opposition? <laughs> I don't. I want everybody to think kindly of me. Well, that may not be the world we live in anymore. I mean, in the West, we've had a good run. Right? But I don't think, I think that run is coming to an end. And I think like in many third world countries, we have the option, we're going to be having the option more and more of just standing there and saying, look, I stand with Jesus Christ, the coming King, and he says, this is not the way it should be. And so I'm going to stand with him. He is the one who will rule. He is the one who is the king. And this is what he says. And so here I stand. Martin Luther had to do that in the past. Many, many people who we don't even know, we'll get to know them in heaven, have given their lives in testimony for Jesus Christ. It's that important. 
but it brings peace to heaven because Revelation 12 hasn't happened yet. There's a lot of blood that needs to be spilled before that happens and Satan is fully defeated. All right, peace and change. Now, Jesus kind of, he's coming down from the Mount of Olives. They get to a place and the the disciples have just started cheering because they know of his power and they're rejoicing in all the things they've seen. He comes around and he gets a full view of the city. Now, it must have been beautiful. Probably bring a tear to any of our eyes. Maybe not today, but back then it would. But here's the deal. Jesus begins to weep over Jerusalem. And what I want to show you here is he says something entirely different than we're used to him saying. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Your house is deserted, it's forsaken. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're saying. They're actually fulfilling what he said. Jerusalem will see me. You're yelling, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not how this one ends. Jesus is going to repeat that same thing I just said on Wednesday when he gives the woes to the Pharisees and scribes. And guess what? They haven't been yelling as a nation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord since that time, but they will in the tribulation. But he says something entirely different here. And the only thing I want to focus because of time, focus on because of time is simply this. You missed your visitation. I mean, if those are not stunning words, you missed the time of your visitation. And, you know, God was still long-suffering in this because this is said in like 30, you know, depending upon which of those big-headed men you look at, 30 or 33 A.D. The thing is, The Romans didn't come until 70. Still quite a few years before what Jesus is saying here would be fulfilled. But the the result is if you miss the openness, if you miss this time of visitation, what is your life going to look like? What's going to happen to you? You don't want to do that. that. But he's saying at this point it's already too late because he has been duking it out with the Jewish leaders. He knows that the lines have already been drawn. And so the application I would make here is the people, the leaders of Jerusalem were being given an opportunity to change. It would have been a big change. Uh, It would have been a scary change. They didn't want to change. A lot of times when God asks us to make a change in our lives, uh, there's fear involved. We don't have peace. I don't have peace, particularly when God asks something big of me. I... It takes me forever, and the older I get, the more forever it takes. But the point being is that when he does ask us to change, where would that peace come from? Are we ready? Are we willing to do that? We hear a knock on the door, and we say, you know, I think that's Jesus, but I don't want to open the door. I don't want to open the door, because if I let him in, he's going to tell me to do this. But isn't it interesting that that passage in Revelation 3.20, him standing at the door actually has to do with the door to a Christian's heart. And he's wanting to come in. What is he wanting to do? Yell? No. Have a meal. He's wanting to have fellowship with us. He'll bring the change in his own way, in his own time. The thing is, are we willing to do that? And I'm, I'm kind of saying that in this way because I, I really do think that in the next 
10 years, there's going to be a lot of change. Are we willing to give more of ourselves? See, because this would have been a total commitment. Do you remember that? When, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, these guys are pulling out their hair, the, the Pharisees and everybody, and they're saying, what are we going to do? This man works many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our holy place and destroy our city. No, they wouldn't have done that. If they would have accepted Christ, that was just fear. That was fear because they didn't even want to change. What would give you the peace? Jesus gives you the peace, right? If you get to know who he is and what he really wants. I've seen people change their careers and uh, do amazing things. I, you know, it was kind of interesting. I was up in Milwaukee and my uncle, um, he's kind of becoming an old timer now. Poor guy's 80 years old. But anyway, um, what he's recounting And this is really interesting to me, because if you ask me, what two events, discussions do I remember where I really bucked about changing? He remembered them both. And one was just on a sidewalk outside of his house. And he remembered that event, because you know what my response to him was? Do you know what I would have to change in my life if I did what you're telling me to do? Give my life to Jesus Christ? I mean, I had the whole thing laid out. It was going to be terrible. You may as well give me a frontal lobe lobotomy if I'm going to give my life to Christ. I mean, that's about as much fun as the future is going to be. I didn't say those words exactly, but that's exactly what was running through my mind. Where does the peace come from? Where did the peace come from? Understanding who Jesus was. Now, just so you know, I've already talked to Dawn out there. She knows I'm going to go over. And um, so they're going to be playing a game called Catch the Disciple. We know it as Duck, Duck, Goose, but they're going to do Catch the Disciple. And uh, they have another one called For Whom the Rooster Crows. Uh, That's going to be musical chairs. But anyway, peace and change. Who doesn't need that? But see, it's your focus. It's our focus on Jesus and who he is. When he opens that door, walk through it. Because, I mean, the offer stands open for a long time, but sometimes the offer closes. Next slide. Okay, peace and rejection. So he enters Jerusalem, and the entire city is stirred. Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Is that right? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Well, you know, I I guess uh, descriptively it's right, but this is the king? This is the savior? This is the redeemer of Israel? This is the seed from the woman? that has come to defeat the enemy? This is the child that was promised to Abraham? No, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. The two guys going to Emmaus. Jesus walks there incognito, probably had glasses on, and yeah, I don't know what he was doing, but they couldn't, they couldn't recognize him. He says, what's this thing that you're discussing with one another? And one of them stops and he says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened there in these days? And he says, what things? And he says, oh, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet great uh, in, in word and deed before God and the people, and we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. It's like, guys, you don't know? What's ironic about the title is just simply this. If you wanted to say it in the way that is more descriptive, it would say, this is the prophet Jesus from Branch of Galilee. 
Because Nazareth means branch. Remember the branch of Jesse that is spoken of to come forward. If they were perceptive, it was almost like a parable within that title. They caught on. They should have caught on, and they didn't. Ah, that's kind of rejection, but not quite. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. You know what's so interesting about this, too? is uh, For you Tolkien fans, any Tolkien fans out here? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Feel your pain. Anyway, when Aragorn comes to Min, uh, Minister, okay, when he comes there, he heals two people. Ah, this is just trivia. Firamir and Arwen? Anyway, um, the point being is he says the hands of the king are healing hands. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and this is probably where Tolkien got it. He goes into the temple. The blind and the lame come to him. This is a major thing that's happening here. And then the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. They don't even know what they mean, right? They don't even know what they mean. Save us, O God, is the literal translation. Save us, O God, son of David. Wow. And then, next slide, come the bad guys. So the chief priests and scribes come, they're indignant. They say, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, I was brought perfect praise. That line from the Old Testament was meant to be fulfilled in this hour. Good planning by God, right? The event begins with the fulfillment of prophecy. It ends with the fulfillment of prophecy. How do you know that Jesus can bring peace in a time of rejection? Because he is being rejected here, by the way. He is being rejected. How do you know he can bring peace? Well, it was a fulfillment of Scripture. God had already planned it. Do you know how many times in Jesus' life there was a, like a brilliant event that got squashed by something bad? Don't you hate that? Like if somebody shows up at your birthday party and they turn it into a fiasco? He goes to Nazareth where he's brought up and he says, he reads in the the, the, um, synagogue and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's huge. And they take offense at him. He's sitting with his disciples and he says, I wanted so badly to celebrate this Passover with you, but there's a traitor at the table. But that was also the fulfillment of prophecy. You know, we don't like rejection, but Jesus leads us in to situations like that. And it isn't just an accident. It's the fulfillment of what he wants to do, not only in his plan, but in our lives. So when God leads us into the unexpected, we can have peace. We can have peace because that's how he shows us the wonder of what he can do. We just need to trust him. Happened to him enough. Peace and opposition, that was something that was scripted by the Father too. And so if he leads us in times of opposition where people are opposed to what we say about him, we know that he's with us. Peace and the confusion, I mean, this is a messed up 
a messed up world. But in that, he is still working, even with people going back and forth and changing their confession, whatever the case may be. Peace and change, certainly, and peace in rejection. You know, he was rejected, right? And we talk about that. We just don't want to exactly share that. But it's sort of like he says in Philippians, you have been granted not only to believe in him, but to suffer as he suffered. Okay, last one. So where do we find peace? John, John 14. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I told you that I was going and I will come again. Boom. Our peace is in Jesus. And then in John 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world... You have tribulation, but be a good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you took your son through all of these things um, to demonstrate for us that the peace that he had in you is the same peace that we can have in him. Our lives can get turned on their heads. We can face disappointment. We can face challenges. We can face opposition. We can face rejection. Uh, We can even face death. But somehow in all of that, we realize that we can have peace. A peace that is far greater than us. A peace that has been won through our Savior. And so we thank you for that, and we thank you for putting us in a time like this where we can declare to the, the world how great our Savior is. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.